0: Three, two, one. Hi, welcome to Pinellas County Schools Foundation of Literacy Podcasts, professional develop brought to you by the ESE department. This is episode four, The Big Idea, part two, word recognition, phonics, decoding, and sight words. Again, this is produced and brought to you by the ESE department. I'm your host, Deborah Lewis. And today, I'm joined by my co-host from my wonderful team, Jamie Mays. Say hello. Hello. And Julie Savon. Hello. Our last episode was the big idea in Phonological Awareness, part one. We did have a face-to-face that deconstructed Scarborough's Rope and put everything that we learned in the podcast into practice. Our ISDs are specialists in reading. In this episode, we will host the experts in the science of reading. Tiffany Bell, the Instructional Staff Developer for Dyslexia, say hello. Hi, everyone. And Jesse Steiff, Pinellas County Schools psychologist, will be joining us as well with his expertise in the foundation and how language and uh, reading acquisition is acquired. So I'm going to turn this over to Jamie Say hi, Jamie. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hi, my name is Jamie. I have been an ESE teacher in various grade levels for the past eight years and also won the CEC Teacher of the Year last year. And oh, uh, I was
0: going to bring that up.
1: Yay! <laughs> That's okay. Uh, and I'm very excited to be part of the staff developer team for Pinellas County Schools. I am one of eight serving our elementary schools across the county and I'm excited to be working on this project. I'm gonna start our podcast off today by explaining why we need to teach phonics. Phonics instruction is the best and most efficient way for students to learn the alphabetic principle because our English language is a very alphabetic language. When students receive phonics instruction, it's not just something that needs to be taught for the sake of teaching, it's more of a means to the end which the goal being fluent reading and writing. Because once students are able to read and write fluently, they're able to spend more of their brain power comprehending what they're reading instead of determining what the words on the page say or what the letter sounds make. And now I'm excited to introduce you and talk to our expert Tiffany Bell. Tiffany, can you briefly introduce yourself and a little bit about your
2: role for the county? sure hi everyone i'm tiffany bell and i am now the instructional staff developer for dyslexia for the district and as the instructional staff developer for dyslexia i support the district's initiative in educating our community about dyslexia what it is the characteristics how to meet the students needs and the needs of dyslexic students you might see me in trainings too that involve the teaching of foundational skills to meet students needs I am also part of the initiative in developing the district screening process to determine what explicit instruction is needed to close foundational gaps in reading.
1: Thank you for sharing. Now could you explain to us a little bit about what is dyslexia and the importance of building automaticity?
2: Oh yes. Okay. So I always like to begin by just covering basic pieces. So really dyslexia is the most common type of reading problem and it likely affects about 20% of the population and represents about 80 to 90% of all those with learning disabilities. And so, you know, unfortunately there are many myths about what dyslexia is and what people think dyslexia is. So one of the most common myths I hear is that people with dyslexia see words or letters backwards and in fact research has shown that they do not see things backwards nor do they have any other sort of distortions in their visual skills so the problem is phonological or auditory it is not visual and we know that phonological refers to the sounds within speech so while people with dyslexia generally display normal visual skills they do display one of the more one or more deficiencies in phoneme awareness, rapid automized naming, phonological working memory, phonological blending, or phonic decoding, all of which are skills that are primarily phonological or auditory in nature, not visual. So bottom line, dyslexia makes it difficult to read fluently, recall words automatically, and read words accurately. It can also be defined as poor word level reading skills, despite adequate effort, learning opportunities, and normal language skills. So I think we must think also about how the inability to fluently and accurately read words often affects reading comprehension too. And I think you guys mentioned this earlier is These struggling readers direct so much of their attention and energy on thinking about every word and figuring out unknown words that so little of their attention is left to focus on the meaning of what they read. They are word-by-word readers, right? So they do not experience the same fluidity that a fluent reader experiences when they're reading text. And so this makes it harder for them to understand what they read. So, students with dyslexia usually have great difficulty learning to read words. However, though, I do want to say this, with strategic instruction that addresses the barriers that prevent them from being effortless, fluent readers of words, people with dyslexia can and will become successful readers. I think it's also important to say that intelligence is not related to dyslexia and people with average to above average IQ can and do have dyslexia. I see where students are twice exceptional all the time with being gifted and dyslexic. And we also see that it can be hereditary or it is hereditary. And you know what? I also want to go back to what I mentioned earlier about the core deficits of, of people with dyslexia. I said that deficits are in one or more of the following areas, and I want to explain those areas. I don't want to just throw around a bunch of terms, right, and not explain them. So let's go back. And then what I also want you all to do is I want you to kind of think of a student that you know now, right, or that you have known in the past as I kind of go through um, these deficit areas, okay? so. They are usually present in one of the, they usually have deficits in one or the, one or more, excuse me, of the following areas. All right, so there is the deficit in phoneme awareness. And I know you guys are talking a lot about that in the training. This would be the ability to recognize and manipulate individual phonemes, right? And spoken words. And remember the phonemes are the, well, you guys have this, but phonemes are in the <laughs> smallest unit of sound and spoken words, right? This is basically, phoneme awareness is basically the awareness of sounds within words. So a deficit in this area can affect a student's ability to learn the correct letter sounds. Blend them correctly to read the word, even segment the sounds within the words to spell the words correctly, and then decode the words. And we even see it when they have difficulty hearing the rhyme, right? I mean, I could go on and on, but those are some common things that we see, right? And then I also want to mention too that research has shown that older struggling readers almost always have difficulties with phoneme awareness that were never addressed. This is why we're talking about it so much now. And um, research shows that such individuals will continue to struggle with reading until that difficulty is corrected. Alright, so they usually have a deficit in phoneme awareness, right? And then there's the deficit, there can be a deficit as well in what we call phonological memory. And I mentioned that earlier, and I'm going to tell you what that is. So that's the ability to store and retrieve the sounds of speech. And this might sound familiar to some of, some of you, and that's where they tend to forget the parts of words. And or even confuse the sounds, right? So they have difficulty recognizing and manipulating the sounds, which is why those students have such difficulty with spelling, decoding, and hearing the rhymes and words. This is often, and and this might sound familiar, this is often the student that will, when they come to an unknown word, they will stare at it. They will stop and they will stare at it, and this may be due to the fact that they're trying to recall from their memory the sound or sounds that they need in order to begin decoding the word. So, And and this is also often even present when they've received repetition, right? They're still having difficulty retrieving the correct letter sound or retrieving it automatically and fluently. So a lot of times I'll be out um, at a school and I will hear teachers say, sound it out. But the student's sitting there and there's that long pause or hesitation. That's because they're most likely searching. They're searching their memory because it is, it's difficult for them to store and recall the letter sounds.
1: So what you're saying is when a teacher asks them to sound out the word, it's not because they can't sound it out, it's because they're not able to recall the sound that the letters
2: they're looking at make. Right, and I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit more, And you guys know I like to talk, right? <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about that, right? Because that that's a barrier, and so it's really, really important to, to know what students need, right? We have to do our diagnostics to dig around and figure out what they need, but we have to deliver our instruction so we can get past that barrier, but I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But let me just keep on going about where we might see deficits in the following areas. Okay, so we have the phoneme awareness, um, phonological working memory, and then often there's that deficit in phonic decoding. So in order to code a word, they must identify, right, the correct letter sounds, and then blade that sound, correct sound to the phoneme to that letter. So then through phonological blending, the person would need to blend the sounds, right, in order to correctly read the word. A person with dyslexia has great difficulty with this process. And this might sound familiar with some of your students or the student that you're thinking of. So even though they've received that intervention in that area, they still continue to have difficulty with this. So as the teacher, it is necessary like I said, sorry I'm repeating myself, but I like to do that, you guys know that, just kidding. As a teacher it is necessary to figure out where the deficits are and then teach to the deficits, right? So I know that you guys are all going over the um, diagnosing of what students need, right? But I also want to talk about another area which is the barriers, right? They're sometimes present, right, in our instruction and we have to or with our students and we have to be mindful, I think, of those barriers and what we have to do when we deliver our instruction. We have to be conscious of them and deliver our instruction accordingly. So when a student struggles in a particular area like remembering sounds, blending sounds, and segmenting sounds within words, which affects their ability to code words accurately and fluently even with intervention, How are we going to address the barrier of remembering the sounds, right, and getting them Mm -hmm. to apply it fluently? You did ask me about automaticity, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, I like to talk about this too. So let's talk about automaticity, right? Our end goal for our students who struggle to read words should be that they become effortless, fluent decoders of words. That's our end goal, right? They do it unconsciously, just do it fluently. I just want to say this first. Without automatic letter sound skills, right, orthographic mapping is impossible. Letter sound skills are not optional for permanent storage of words. They are essential. I constantly see students as old as third grade that are still, and even fifth grade or older, that are still not able automatically recall short vowel sounds. And so that's a barrier, right? Even if we know that they need particular vowels, we have to know what are we going to do in our instruction to address that barrier. So one of the things that I always did in my practice is once a student had mastered a given letter sound, a letter sound, a digraph, or especially our vowel teams like A, I, E, E. Once they mastered that sound and I had taught it, it went on a card. It went on a card and it was part of my daily warm-up where I was exposing them to that sound to build their automaticity, right? To build that automatic, effortless recall. So that when they went to decode the unknown word, They didn't stop and start the process of trying to search their memory. Right? So that's something we can do to build automaticity. And so hopefully that will help the student who is sitting and staring at the word and and not able to retrieve or recall what they need to do to decode. Earlier I shared that students with dyslexia have a weakness with phonological memory, which causes weak decoding skills the letter sounds have got to be readily available to them so they can begin the act of blending them and blending them together so they can decode the word. So again, I think best practice is to think about the barriers that your students struggle with that prevent them from becoming fluent decoders. And then again, deliver your instruction so that your student is able to fluently decode words. And you've got to know what they need. We just need to know how to deliver it. Even something like, let's take a look at a student who's having difficulty blending sounds, right, within words and getting the correct word. The student that blends the sounds, like for the word map, they might say, and says mass. If they're having difficulty with blending, you could practice, extensive practice with that, blending the sounds, right, even almost like a blending drill. I think UF has that on, up on their website, the blending drills so again that barrier of they're not hearing it they're not able to blend let's practice the blending also i i always talk about this and this is a big one it's important too, i think to be mindful in how much your student is applying what they are learning in text right so often our students that struggle the most with reading are reading the least that is for obvious reasons, right? What is difficult isn't much fun. So, how much access do they have to text on their instructional level that's gonna reinforce what they're currently learning in small group? That's a barrier, right? How do students who struggle to read text become more fluent in their reading if they're never reading? This is where, as teachers, we have to address the barrier and think about what can we do, right? to solve this. So, just something that I've always done is I like to explain to students that we have a reading muscle. And some of you have been in my trainings, you've probably heard that. Your reading muscle can't get stronger if you never exercise it, right? Like any other muscle, it has to be exercised. So. So exercise, like when we exercise, it's based on what we need and what's right for us, right? So we don't exercise our muscles. Well, I'm not gonna exercise my muscles with 200 pound weights, right? If I can only lift 10 pounds. If we need to exercise our arms, we don't exercise, do exercises that work only our legs. It's gotta be the same with the reading. Struggling readers must exercise their reading muscle with strategic text that reinforces the skill that they're learning. Decodable text, I like decodable text, or passages are a great way to accomplish this. Let's say if your focus in your reading group is the vowel team AI that says A, then your decodable text should be loaded with that spelling pattern, that AI that says A pattern. This is gonna build automaticity and fluency. You're not gonna see the same progress if they're just interacting with a skill in isolation when they're at the table. They have to engage with text. Work the muscle for best results. Doing fluency activities with that text would also be beneficial. Our struggling readers don't often get to experience reading text the way a fluent reader does. So often their impression of reading is that it's laborious, it's tedious, and that it represents failure. They may even be reminded of that every day. That is a barrier. I say provide them with opportunities to engage with text on their level in a positive way. We've got to flip it around, turn it around, and make it positive. Allow them to experience the fluidity that we fluent readers all have. For each negative experience with text, replace it with a positive experience so they too can feel what reading fluently feels like. If they are in text that is above their level and they're only reading a piece of instructional text Once, how are they working their muscle? Provide them with the materials to take home, even if it's a passage. If you can't send the book home, send something home. They need to become fluent readers by engaging with text. Well said.
1: That was very enlightening, Tiffany. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on dyslexia and the importance of building automaticity. Now we're going to keep the discussion rolling with Jesse Steiff. Thanks, Jesse, for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, Could you just start by um, introducing yourself, telling us your title and a little bit about your job?
3: Yeah. Um, So my name is Jesse Steiff. I am a certified K-6 classroom teacher, taught uh, taught second grade and fourth grade. Uh, Then I was a school psychologist. And now I am your MTSS and literacy specialist uh, in the equity division. Whoa. So my job um, has to do with all things literacy and MTSS from, from making improvements to tier one instruction to better aligning and improving tier two and tier three um, intervention. So reading, uh, reading has always been a huge passion and, uh, and a huge passion for me. Um, in, my, in my spare time, I serve on the board of directors for the Florida chapter of the International Dyslexia Association, a president of the Florida chapter of the Reading League, which is a ded- uh, an organization dedicated to improving uh, the quality of reading instructional practices across the state. So it's good to be here and to be talking about the thing that I love the most.
1: Awesome. You're definitely one of our experts in the area and we're excited to have you. So one of the things I would like to hear about is the reading acquisition process and maybe how does this occur?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll kind of start from the top and go through a comprehensive answer here. Um, So if you're a skilled reader, you'll likely read every word that you see pretty effortlessly, right? So by sight, unless you're reading the shampoo bottle or the toothpaste tube or something like that. The mere glimpse of each word will immediately link to that word's pronunciation and its meaning. You know, the brain's ability to do this is really astonishing, but but how exactly does this happen? The traditional view of how word reading develops holds that beginners memorize some type of association between like a visual property of a word and its meaning. This view would hold that pronunciation of the word is activated only after the meaning of the word has been retrieved. And I want to be really clear here today and saying that this notion is incorrect, and that instruction that's based on this belief will actually lead to some pretty inequitable outcomes for, for large numbers of kids. What we've known for actually several decades is that word reading development happens in some pretty reliable phases and is intimately linked to a process called orthographic mapping. And I'll talk generally about what orthographic mapping is first, and then about the phases of word reading development. Then I'll kind of circle around, because I know we want to talk a little bit about the impact of dyslexia on word reading and orthographic mapping. Now, this might be the first time that Some listeners have heard the word orthographic mapping, but I want to take some time to talk about how it works because it's part of some of the most important background knowledge for teachers and especially teachers of students with reading and language disabilities. The prefix ortho means correct, while graphic has to do with writing. So a word is orthographic if it is spelled or written according to accepted conventions, and the word mapping implies a word spelling is connected to or associated with something else, and that's indeed the case. What orthographic mapping is, essentially, is the connection-making process that makes automatic word recognition possible. The connections that must be made initially are actually between the individual graphemes of a word and the individual phonemes in the spoken word. Symbolized by those graphemes. And a, a grapheme is just kind of a $10 term for a letter or a group of letters that symbolizes one phoneme. So the letter T could be a grapheme, the digraph CH could be a grapheme, or the, or the letter combination E-I-G-H can also be a grapheme. It symbolizes the long A sound. So if these grapheme-phoneme connections can be made, consciously and explicitly by a reader, just a few times for some students, but sometimes those those connections have to be made many, many times for other students, particularly students with dyslexia, the word will be automatically recognizable for them. It'll become a word that will never need to be decoded or analogized or predicted ever again and it's the connections between the phonemes in the spoken word and the graphemes in the spelling that serve to glue a word spelling to its pronunciation in the memory of a reader so it's the the connection between the phonemes and the graphemes that's the glue that gets a word to be sticky in your in your memory now Because we have to make connections between individual spoken phonemes and the letters that represent them, clearly orthographic mapping depends in part on students' phonemic awareness skills and their letter knowledge. So, orthographic mapping will begin to occur between spoken words and written words as long as some non negotiable prerequisite skills are in place. And I want to be really clear in saying that far and away, by a mile. The largest factor that determines whether or not students have these prerequisite skills is not anything that has to do with an inherent characteristic of the learner, but it has almost everything to do with the instruction and how explicit and systematic it is. And so here are those prerequisite skills. Number one, Letter recognition, right? Letter names, letter shapes, recognizing upper uppercase versus lowercase. Very important prerequisite skill. Number two is knowledge of letter sound relationships or knowledge of phoneme grapheme relationships. Now, what I mean by that is knowledge of the 24 consonant sounds and the 20 vowel sounds. And the way that this total of 44 phonemes can be represented in writing. So this knowledge of letter sound relationships goes well beyond knowing your 26 individual letters, but having a deep knowledge of how the 44 phonemes in our spoken language relate to the multiple, multiple ways that we can represent them. And for students to be able to learn this, this takes high quality phonics and decoding instruction that's provided by a teacher who's pretty familiar with the structure and phonology of the english language now the third prerequisite skill is the phonemic awareness skills that are needed for decoding or sounding out and spelling words you know specifically we when we think of phonemic awareness we think of blending of separate phonemes to form whole spoken words and segmenting whole spoken words into the, into their separate phonemes that contributes to spelling. There are other sorts of phonemic awareness exercises like phonemic manipulations, deletions, substitutions and these are all excellent ways of teaching phonemic awareness. I think of something like a word chain using letters to teach phoneme manipulations and that, that's one of those are one of some of my favorites. And the final prerequisite skill for orthographic mapping to occur is practice. Practice, practice, practice decoding and spelling large numbers of words. There's no substitute. The best instruction allows for the introduction of phonics patterns in a systematic process from simple to more complex and allows students the opportunity for structured and cumulative practice of those instructed patterns. And so that's kind of my start to finish very, very quick rundown of, of orthographic mapping.
1: And joining us now is Julie Savan, another member of our ISD team.
4: Welcome Julie. Hi Jamie, thanks. Um, this is Julie Savon. I am part of the ESE elementary team. I was a classroom teacher for 12 years and I did spend a couple years in VE Resource. So thank you for joining us. Hi Deb. Hi Julie.
0: Actually, Julie has been here for all the interviews, so this is the first time she's speaking. We're so glad she's going to contribute to the conversation, and I did enjoy Jesse's piece. I always feel smarter when I leave Jesse. So now we're going to get into talking about phonics instruction, and uh, we want to help children acquire alphabetic knowledge and use it to read and spell words. Now we're going to talk about phonics instruction, what it is, and to help children acquire alphabetic knowledge and use it to read and spell words. Phonics instruction should be systematic and explicit, and it's important to plan and implement effective phonics instruction in that way. Now when you do it systematically, phonics instruction is teaching a set of useful sound spelling relationships, and it's clearly defined, carefully selected, like use the data that you have. What are they good at? What can they accomplish? What are they lacking? And using it in a logical sequence. So when you're doing phonics or decoding and you take, say, a core phonics survey and the child has their short A, their short A, their short, a, their short U, but they need E and I, that's where you start. It's not a program where you start and flip the pages and hit every skill that is identified, you hit every skill where the deficit is. And it goes through a continuum from short vowels, to digraphs, to blends, to R controlled, to long vowels, diphthongs, and ultimately getting to the multisyllabic words. Now explicit instruction refers to the lesson. And instruction is explicit when teachers clearly, overtly, and thoroughly communicate to the student how to do something. So it's kind of an I do, we do, you do. Watch as I explain the E sound. It's a smile sound. And you do tile building and you do a lot of like uh, symbol imagery and then you bring it to text and ultimately they write it and work and manipulate it and you do that over and over and over again until the skill is honed in. So how do you get data? I know that each school is required K-2 through to use the l and that will give you a sense of what is lacking in decoding if they are lacking in decoding. Julie put it perfectly that they might have a deficit in short vowels but have their consonant digraphs and in initial blends. Do you teach the consonant digraphs and in initial blends? No. You go back to the deficit teach the deficit, and then move on to the next thing, which would be our controlled. So we don't live in a place where something that they already know. You can review it. You can always review it. Right. But don't live there.
1: And you can also use that data to group kids based on who needs similar things so that you're giving each kid what they need without giving the student who doesn't need those consonant digraphs, a lesson on consonant digraphs, you're right. giving them the R controlled.
0: You're right, Jamie. I know that.
4: Well, I think with any assessment that our teachers have done, whether it's LFAC, some teachers have used the Core
2: Phonics Survey. And that's where I was going. Thank you, Julie. Right. Words <laughs> their way. Yes, there, there's words a, Their Way there's, is What another
0: is that one. called? The, the Spelling um, Inventory. Spelling Inventory. Mm-hmm. And that's an easy one to group because you can literally use the chart and see, see
4: where they these fall. These are all
0: the short E's. Mm-hmm. These are all the...
4: And the groups are fluid because when you take the data on who knows what, once they master that skill, and you assess the students on the skills that they master, you might need to readjust those groups. So
0: what is your answer, Julie and Jamie, to people said that's just, you know, teachers say that's just one more thing I have to do if, In, about taking data, taking data daily on a
4: student. Well, I think if you don't take the data, all you really have is your opinion. Oh, I so agree. I agree. take the data and show what the student has mastery of and where the deficit is, because if you're not teaching to the deficits, that should be guiding your instruction. And that
0: always guided my instruction. I would get very reflective and say, oh, he he really nailed the short A, but, you know, now we're into R-controlled and he really needs AR.
1: data is just one more thing that you have to do, I mean, like Julie said, if you don't have data, you just have an opinion. But if you're not using data then what what's making your choices in the instruction? And even going back to our last training when we asked like, well what are you gonna do to be the change in that child's life?
0: Which goes circles back into the systematic piece. Right. If you if you have and it doesn't matter, you might have Erla, you might have Linda Mubell, I don't know what else you might use back Spire. it's just good teaching to target the deficit and then use the tools that you have you can combine and take and pick and choose to remediate that student but taking the data is systematic because I know I need this. I know I don't need that. Here's my justification. Here's my data. And taking anecdotals. And
1: taking that data regularly, hopefully daily, shows whether or not it's working. Mm-hmm. Because if it's not working, why are you wasting your time and the student's time by giving a prescription? Like a doctor. Like why would the doctor give you a prescription that's not working?
0: And I always say, it's like if, if the child came to you with a broken leg and you said, oh, you hurt, yes, that's too bad, here's a Band-Aid. That, that is what, if you're not doing it systematically and you're not doing it explicitly, it is not solving the issue and their deficit. And explicitly, you can say, hey, you really nailed the short A. We are ready to move on. Look at this. Like, you grew just mm-hmm. last week. But now, what I'm going to teach you is about the AR. Tile build, we're going to do the same thing in so many different ways over and over and over again and and to tackle what that child needs. So I was talking about the systematic instruction, and I kind of got the horse before the cart. So, Julie, do you want to tell us a little bit in more depth what I meant by that?
4: Yes, absolutely. So when you think about systematic instruction... Research of the last 50 years has shown that there is a general sequence for teaching all these phonic elements. So the order is based on utility as well as the ease of learning. The elements first introduced are the most consistent and occur most frequently in the English language. For example, you start out with single consonants and short vowels, moving on to consonant digraphs, Long vowels with a silent E, which is that C-V-C-E pattern. Long vowels at the end of words or syllables. Y as a vowel. The R-controlled vowels. Silent consonants. Vowel digraphs, which you might know as vowel teams. And variant vowel digraphs and diphthongs.
0: So, if there is a deficit, say at the very beginning of the single consonant and short vowels, does
4: one start there? If that is where the child needs instruction, yes. But let's say you take an assessment on a kiddo and they're in the long vowels with that silent E, but maybe they're not firm in maybe one of the single consonants or one of the short vowel sounds, then I would go back and teach that one bucket you need to fill and then go ahead where the deficits are. I wouldn't go back and teach anything that they already know because that would just kind of be a waste of time. Don't you think, Deb?
0: I absolutely think so. And I actually made a graph for it so that I could keep track of what the student needs. I would circle what they needed keep data on it, circle their um, success rate, and graph it. And if they hit 90% five days in a row, then it's boom, boom, let's move on to the next skill. And and you can review it after it was taught just to make sure it's solid. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, it is. And reintroduce it here and there. But don't live there because when we know better, we do better. So why do we do this?
1: So we teach phonics as a means to an end. Our end goal ultimately is fluent reading and writing because when students can fluently read and write with independence, they're not using all of their energy decoding and encoding the words. They're using their energy to think about what is the text telling me. That's why we teach phonics.
0: So let's talk about and switch gears to irregular word reading. An irregular word is basically a word that the student doesn't have the phonics skill to read. So what are irregular words and what are regular words, Julie?
4: So irregular words can't be decoded by sounding them out versus regular words that can be decoded by sounding them out. With high-frequency words, they are both regular and irregular words that often appear in printed text.
0: So we're kind of basically talking about what?
4: So with
1: the high frequency words, right? So that could be there's lots of different sources you could use for your high frequency word list. Uh, some common sources to use are the Dolch Basic Sight Words, 1000 Instant Words, or the Fry List, Educator's Word Frequency Guide, Basic Elementary Reading Vocabularies, American Heritage Word Frequency. If you use Linda Moon Bellacher Schools, there's the 1000. High-frequency word list or star words. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different resources that have high-frequency words.
0: And our team is happy to coach you through how to get more bang for your buck for your, I keep saying star words because that's what I use, but for your high-frequency words. One of my schools, I had them go on a passport um, around the school, and they had their words that they were working on, and they had to run up to an adult and say their words, five words to five adults five times they they had great success with that they moved rapidly through those sight words and they thought it was the greatest thing to leave their classroom and be able to be gone for five minutes just five minutes does anybody else have routines like there's many routines I know you coach some at my schools and
1: yes I use I also call them star words even if I didn't use the star word list just because that's what I ended up calling them as part of the routine, where the student would have to, we call it take a picture, and they'd have to think of that picture in their mind of the letters in order, what they say, using stimuli, whether it's the table, the air, or cardboard, not cardboard, construction paper, oh, yeah, to write the word in a more multi-sensory fashion. Deb, like you were saying, even just having the kids leave the room and read it to five adults, that ties it back to what our expert said, earlier in the podcast is just repetition, repetition, repetition.
0: Sometimes repetition is not a bad thing, and they are also getting, like with the Passport experience, they cut kinesthetic movement. So they're able to walk around and refresh their brain and have their, their synopsis firing, and it seemed to stick, and they loved
4: it. It's important to provide students with explicit instruction and systematic practice in identifying irregular words.
0: So, and one thing, and I'm sure you did this, Jamie and Julie, when you pull up the word live, it's L-I-V-E, and that's an irregular word. So, what well, that might be a bad example, because they could say live, but if, if the word is live, and you say to them, that's what makes reading so complex, that it should say L-I-V-E, it should say live, the E should jump over the V and bump the I in the head, but... Some words don't play fair.
1: I would tell the kids they don't play by the rules. Oh,
0: that's good too.
1: Because
0: just don't play fair.
1: We teach them, like said, "AI should mm-hmm. say A." Mhm. And
0: that's a better example. I have Thank to you acknowledge, and like
1: you're right. I did teach you that AI says <laughs> A, <laughs> but time. But remember, this is a star word in Star World. They don't play fair. They don't play by the rules.
0: I had a kid that would go,
1: wah, wah, rule breaker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or one. The word one doesn't play fair. Mm-mm. O-N-E. It should be own. It should. It should be.
1: Wah, wah, rule breaker. we to make a button like the easy button? <laughs> murm, murm. I've used that all day long. So we're going to wrap up these irregular words with some thoughts from the experts. Rolando O'Connor said, The rewards of learning high-frequency words thoroughly and reliably are smoother, less effortful reading, and perhaps a greater inclination to read independently, which in turn may also increase a student's store of instantly recognized
0: words. Wise words. From J.J. Pekulski, If developing readers cannot instantly identify high-frequency words, they are unlikely to become fluent because of the widespread presence of these words.
4: And finally, from Wiley Blevins, children don't learn irregular words as easily or quickly as they do regular words. Therefore, children need to be taught irregular high-frequency words with explicit instruction. There's that word again. Explicit instruction.
0: Explicit instruction. Mm. Systematic. Use the data. Otherwise, it's your opinion.
1: Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of Foundations of Literacy for ESE Teachers. If you are participating in this podcast through Pinellas County Schools, don't forget to complete the forms prior to our face-to-face training. Thank you.
4: Happy reading.